think doctors are realizing that, oh, we've like negated every single other hormone that is messed up, every single one of them. And we're blaming all of those hormones being messed up on the person, the individual, and it's making treatment a lot harder. Welcome to Under the Insulin. This is a podcast for people with type 1 diabetes by people with type 1 diabetes. Drawing upon our lived experiences, we'll be sharing real conversations about navigating life with T1D. Diabetes affects all aspects of our lives, and we're here to talk about it openly and honestly. Highs and lows, triumphs and woes, we've got it all. So grab your favorite snack, give yourself some insulin, and listen up. This is Under the Insulin. Welcome back to Under the Insulin. Today we get to talk to Jasmine Guerra, fellow ICDR and type 1, who is hard at work as a PhD student researching diabetes. She has a lot of things to say about science and was able to tell us about why your diabetes may vary so much and why don't we have a cure for diabetes? What will it take? So excited to have Jasmine here today. Uh, Jasmine, would you like to start off with a little introduction? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, My name is Jasmine. I've had type 1 for 14 years, and I'm also a researcher, and I study potential cures, and I say that word loosely, for type 1 diabetes. So I study stem cell-derived beta cells, basically how to make those stem cells a little bit better for future transplants. Awesome, and I know that's something on a lot of people's mind, you know, will there ever be a cure or when will it be? So it'll be definitely good to hear from you on what's the latest in the research as well as your forecast for things. So we're excited to delve into that. So I think we should start with hearing a bit of your backstory uh, when you were first diagnosed and kind of your journey into researching potential, as we said, cures for diabetes. So I was diagnosed uh, when I was 11, and at the time, I actually don't remember a ton about my diagnosis. I just remember, like, thinking it wasn't a big deal, I'd be okay, and then I got out of, like, the the preteen era and then started getting into the teens, and I'm like, okay, this is kind of hard, and I remember being in junior high, and, um, like, like, junior high was kind of a tough climate, I think, especially if you have to take injections all the time. So I kind of just decided to be secret, like secretive about it. So I didn't tell anybody. And uh, through high school, none of my friends, except for my like really close friends knew that I had this disease. Um, And then fast forward, I did my undergraduate in pharmacology. Even then, I didn't tell anybody about type 1 diabetes um, until I took this diabetes course course with my professor that I'm studying with currently. So during my undergrad, I was also researching um, chemistry, and I just made the decision that I didn't want to have my life be 100% type 1 diabetes. So I was trying to study things that were not diabetes related. But somehow, like my mind kept going towards like, oh, but it'd be kind of cool to apply this type 1 or this uh, chemistry to type 1 diabetes or then I started a project in epilepsy and I was like, oh, I wonder if there's any potassium channels that can affect type one diabetes. And so my mind just kept redirecting myself. Um, and my super 
supervisor at the time kind of suggested that I should follow where my passion is. And that's how I found my current supervisor um, at the University of Alberta who studies diabetes. It's really interesting to hear that evolution. Do you feel like that moving into research also went hand in hand with you accepting your diabetes a little more? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I met ICD uh, back in 2019, and I still was kind of unsure about my path, I think, as all of us are at some point in their lives. And um, talking to everybody and experiencing everyone living with type 1 diabetes and being so open and kind of inspired me because everyone looked like they were living a good life even though they had challenges like it was nice to see like I remember I uh, talked to Chris and I talked to uh, a bunch of people that were on this trip and everyone was so confident and just like I have type 1 diabetes but I don't let it stop me I'm gonna go ski down this hill I thought it was really cool and inspiring so actually at this like retreat I kind of I don't know a, a a flip kind of switched in my mind. And I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. I think I want to do this. And at that point, I was drafting up my graduate letter to apply to the graduate program here. And it totally went hand in hand because even a few years ago in 2020, I was still a little bit shy about having diabetes. And now I feel like I can be asked any question and nothing phases me. Like, yeah, ask me, ask me about everything. That's so great. It sounds like there was this pull to study diabetes. And I wonder, do you feel like part of that is that personal connection, like having diabetes and then wanting to find the cure? Because that would also be a cure for yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not think, suggesting you're I a think... selfish person or anything. No, but I think everybody kind of operates on those like selfish desires sometimes. And that's okay. Like sometimes you operating on your desire to do something because it helps yourself also helps you know thousands or millions of other people afflicted with that same thing and it also gives you that like passion to continue like studying it when things get really difficult because like when you start a graduate degree it's kind of an interesting um path because every day you get to work you realize how much knowledge you don't know and every day you're working you only learn a little bit of that knowledge so when you're going through your degree, you're actually learning less than what you knew the day before in relativity. <laughs> so having that passion is really crucial because it can be really daunting for a lot of people. I think that kind of reminds me of like how like you're saying like you need that motivation within, like having it be for yourself and others. Because like when you watch the Shark Tank, and I know this is a ridiculous except like way to compare it, but like the people who invent things usually invent things because something was like tedious or the way they had to do it sucked. (laughs) So they wanted to invent a better way to do things because of their own experience. And I think that kind of like laps over, even though it's a really strange comparable. No, I think that's like, so I, that's like DIY loop. So people who were in the looping community, like the people who created closed loop systems for actually all types of pumps, that started within our community. And it was because they were like, I'm tired of taking insulin this like barbaric way and I'm going to come up with something better. And then that forced other companies to do a little bit better. And now they came out with their own closed loop systems. They've come up with better technology. If we didn't have any problems, we'd never innovate ever 
question and it, it doesn't it doesn't really matter if it's selfish or not because eventually I think it if you do get far enough if you have that passion to get far enough it's going to help a lot of people Absolutely. I was wondering if you could give us a little day in the life of a researcher, because I know even trying to schedule this podcast interview, it was kind of contingent upon what was going on with the cells that you're researching. Yeah, I guess I'm going to start off by saying um, you can have your own boundaries in science and you can say, I only work between these hours and, you know, don't contact me out of those hours. I really love what I do and I love the flexibility of my work. So if I wanted, I could come in a little bit later and then go home later. Or um, right now my schedules, I'm trying to be a morning person because I seem to be more happy in the mornings. So normally what it looks like is um, I get a plan roughly a week or two in advance for when my the cells are going to be ready. And the cells I'm talking about are these stem cell derived beta cells. Um, and normally they do come in the afternoon. So that's an awkward timing schedule too, because sometimes they come at 3 p.m., sometimes it's 5 p.m., sometimes it's 2 p.m., sometimes it can be 10 a.m. in the morning, but usually I don't know the arrival or shipment date until the day of shipment. So yeah, I guess I, I, I like to arrive here before eight and then get my day started. Usually I'm working on my analysis because I've definitely fallen behind there because it's boring. <laughs> Um, and then I receive my cells and I process my cells or do whatever I need to do in the lab. I go for a lunch because it's important to feed yourselves and have breaks throughout the day. And then uh, in the evening times, uh, usually I like to read papers or sometimes I'll just stop for the day and go take a break or go to the gym. And yeah, it's it's nice. It's quite flexible. And um, if anyone is deciding to go to grad school, you do have a lot of autonomy in most labs. And uh, it's kind of cool. <laughs> so what does it mean when you say you're analyzing these stem cell derived beta cells? Like how, what does that mean when it comes to a cure for diabetes or potential cure? Yeah. I like that. Um, I guess that's a really good question. So in science right now, I'm sure many of us have heard about these like new, new stem cell derived treatments that are available. And those stem cell derived treatments springboard off of the current islet treatments that are available for people with severe type 1 diabetes. So not everyone's type 1 diabetes is the same. Some people have um, a more uh, progressive form. Some people have more damage to their pancreas, which makes their type 1 harder to control. So if you fall within that really small criteria group, sometimes you can get a human islet transplant. And it comes from cadaveric donors. Um, usually that transplant goes into your liver. But the problem with it is there's not enough donors out there to tra like transplant everybody in the world who, who lives with type 1 diabetes. But one of the problems with these stem cell-derived beta cells is they don't perform like those cadaveric islets do. So sometimes they release too much insulin. Sometimes they don't really release enough insulin. Um, it's also really difficult to create these um, islet-like cells to like a large enough volume to transplant like a 150 pound human. So what I do in the lab is I'm trying to look at the functionality of these cells. So I look at the functionality by using electricity. So I look at how much insulin is being secreted, how much um, sodium is going into the cell, how much calcium is going into the cell. And we can basically get a functional measure for that. Afterwards, I can pick up the cell 
take it for sequencing, and then really understand what is driving those functional behaviors. And then eventually, hopefully down the line, I can use um, AI to help me visualize stuff that I can't see. It's really cool, but AI isn't as like super fancy as everyone thinks it is because AI is just algorithms, it's just math. So basically I'm using math to tell me what I'm missing as a human being. And hopefully we can apply that to make better cells in the future that might be on the market or you know, might be available for us to get transplanted. That is wild. So cool, hey? You're very cool. My boss's office is right over there. And literally four years ago, I stormed in. I was like, I have this idea. I I, I was like, I I need to do it. And he was like, well, we're a type two lab. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But type one diabetes is important to me. And I think it's important to a lot of people. And I think it can be valuable. And basically, he's like, I'll get back to you. We're full in our lab. And then he was like, Ugh. and he said, yes. <laughs> I got a chill. Is- oh, my goodness. Wow. That is amazing. Good for you. He was fighting for that. He like took a really big risk on me because he didn't know who I was. Like when you take on a grad student, you have that grad student for like six years, max, maybe seven. Sometimes it's like a seven year contract that you're signing with someone. It was wild I was just like super hyped up I was probably ovulating <laughs> well hey it worked out for all of us <laughs> I love that it's true it's awesome. I love that like throw that in there I was ovulating this is how I get things done yeah I actually schedule my meetings like that like sometimes if I have important meetings it's always in the middle of my cycle because I'm like that's when I'm less the least tired that's when I'm like on top of my game that's when like I just feel confident i recommend every person do it <laughs> I Life love hacks from <laughs> so why is it that you said at the beginning that you're kind of hesitant about calling it a cure so what is it that you're aiming for instead with your research yeah that's a really good question the word cure can be a little bit misleading because a cure implies that you're going to go back to your life as it was before having diabetes And unfortunately, that's not true. And I don't think it's going to be true for a really long time. So when you get these cadaveric islet transplants, you have to take immunosuppression. Um, Often they don't last for more than 10 years. 10 years is pushing it. So then you have to get another transplant and uh, you have to, you know, you have to have medical intervention to make sure that these transplants aren't unsafe or they're not causing issues. So I think it's important to say, you know, not say it's a cure when it's not a cure because when insulin was created, it was also marketed as a cure. And we all know that it is not a cure. We're not cured. (laughs) We have a life that unfortunately we have to think a lot more about than people who don't have type one diabetes. So that's why I say like, we should use the word cure cautiously because I think it's important not to like spark, um, spark unjust hope. Because it, and then it turns into the, oh, well, five years ago, they said that I'd be cured and I'm not cured yet. And then that's like really stressful. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I remember when I was diagnosed and they would tell me that, oh, we see a cure in the next five to 10 years. And then you'd go to the walk to cure diabetes and they would say that again. And then I'm like calculating it. I'm like, okay, well, I should have been cured three times now. Like, <laughs> 
And yeah. like it it's not appropriate say things like that. Like you don't know when a cure is gonna happen. Yeah, it totally and is. making that like prediction is is unfair to people. And it, I think a lot of people do live every day hoping for it. Mm-hmm. I and guess hard. Yeah. Throughout my degree, I want to be really conscientious of that because I've been victim to that. Like, you know, maybe I'll be cured. And then, you know, you hear an update. And I think it's important to be like fully transparent as scientists to the community. But we also have to realize that some of that is caused by funding shortages. So Canada has been funding scientists a little bit less lately. And you need to have buzzwords to like make your cause known. Um, And so that's kind of kind of the the issues that we have to face like in order to get funding to do this type of research sometimes you do have to like say oh we're going to cure type 1 diabetes but it's not fair to people living with the disease because it's just causing a false hope and then it's also causing disappointment when that hope isn't met and more resentment right because you're always every single day like the cure is not here yet I hate this rather than just leaning into this place of acceptance and yes you would still hope for a cure but it's more so it would be an added bonus I think you're right and the most heartbreaking thing is when I go out as a scientist first and not someone with diabetes first and then someone living with type 1 diabetes is like oh you said it was going to be cured and it's not cured and I feel like I feel the pain and I feel the emotion because I'm trying we're all trying in the field and there's tons of labs that are trying to you know fix or restore some sort of beta function in people with type one um but that science doesn't work that quickly it 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 takes a lot of iterations to get it right and it takes a lot of iterations not to harm people I think like that's something I've had to adjust my thinking of Instead of like, I guess I still hope for a cure, but I don't live for it. Mm-hmm. And that's been, you know, that's been what has kept me from being disappointed yeah. every single time when it's like, oh, oh, this treatment didn't work or this potential cure didn't work. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, you know, I live another day, but I'm not living for the cure. And that, yeah. you know, keeps me afloat. I agree. And I think um, I also worry about that whole cure mentality because I'm worried it's not going to be the same as when I didn't have diabetes. And then it also prevents people from living their best life now rather than, you know, they'll say, oh, I'll live my best life when I'll live my best life in 10 years when I'm, I don't no longer have diabetes. Like, no, live your best life now today. You deserve that. Absolutely. Like find ways to do that in spite of diabetes. And the reality is treatment has come so far. If I were to tell my younger self from almost three decades ago, where technology is at, like back when I had to wait a whole 60 seconds after a finger poke to find out my blood sugar. And now I can just go on my phone and see these arrows with the directions it's going in that's pretty revolutionary. And that has made a big impact in my quality of life. Yeah. Like, What do you see being the, maybe the most ideal forecast over the next few years, five years, 10 years? Um, would it be yeah. a more advanced treatment kind of scenario? So right now the treatment is mostly focused on people that have the largest risk in our community. 
So those people are people who have more damage to their pancreas. So there's this funny thing that I, um, and this was something I had to unlearn, but when I was growing up, I just assumed everyone had the same type of diabetes. Like if I had type one diabetes, it was the same as Emily's diabetes, or it was the same as whatever, somebody walking down the street. In reality, what we're finding out in science is that's not true. Some people actually do have more damage to their bodies and it's just astronomically harder to control their blood sugars. And it's occasionally like, I mean, not occasionally, this happens quite often and where you'll like be on Instagram and somebody will say, well, if you just didn't eat carbs, you'd be better off. And it's horrible to put the blame on somebody and they're like, I'm trying my best and I can't fix this. So I think these stem cell treatments are going to affect the population that has like the most uh, volatile blood sugars first, ones that can't be controlled with insulin injections and CGMs and DIY loop. And then eventually when we start, you know, seeing a lot of progress in that population, then we can kind of broaden that scope and have other people living with type one diabetes be off of insulin injections, be insulin independent is what we call it here. I'm so curious how they measure someone's diabetes being worse. How in the world do they know that it's genuinely, I'm being careful with my wording because I don't want to say not their fault or that they're non-compliant, but if they're having more erratic sugars, like how are they able to tell that it's genuinely that their body's just less able to control it? Well, like, yeah, exactly. If you have like other ailments, of illness say you have pcos or something like that that's going to impact your diabetes but is that like the diabetes itself exactly like how do you decipher that like how do you separate it because there it's so many overlapping features that how do you know that the diabetes itself is worse Worse. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The bad kind. Just so everybody knows, there is no such thing as the bad kind. They're all bad. (laughs) It's such an interesting topic that you brought up because literally that is what's plaguing all science because there's so many variables that affect a billion different things. So right now, like the best we can do is come up with markers. So um, there was a few studies that were done that was looking at something called C-peptide. And C-peptide is how much endogenous insulin or insulin that your body can produce. Um, And what they found is people with type 1 diabetes have varying levels of C-peptide still working. And the people who have the least amount of C-peptide will end up having the most erratic blood sugars. Um, There's other markers that are now coming up and people are looking at this type of stuff. But before, like I think it was 10 years ago, they actually just thought that people with type 1 diabetes had no beta cells, all of them, there was none. And that's not true. There's also things like glucagon, we can measure how much alpha cell function that somebody has in their body. And certain people will have more or less alpha cell function or stomatostatin function. And so you're right, like it is such a complex problem, because it can also be socioeconomic, it could be how much money someone has, how much access somebody has, but it can also be all of these other factors it's this is the problem this is the the thing that plagues every scientist this is what I lose sleep over every night I'm like what else what other variable could it be 
is it just me or is diabetes the most complex illness I guess I don't know what's going on with other illnesses but sometimes it really feels like it is so my new endo he was like yeah I want to test your c-peptide to make sure you're actually type one oh I was like sure whatever go ahead test like all of it whatever do whatever you want so he tested it I have no idea what the results are because I cannot get um onto my health booklet but I'm curious if I know what my c-peptide levels are on my next appointment would I be able to know whether or not I have quote-unquote bad Um, or like the most damaging I'm gonna go with that Probably not. No, because everybody has different amounts of insulin that they need. Like, so even like some people having that little tiny, tiny bit of C-peptide is enough to like prevent them from needing insulin. And other people, like they'll have this baseline of insulin production in their bodies, but then they still need a ton of insulin. And I think it's because we forget that our beta cells don't just produce insulin. They actually produce three major hormones that like we just don't talk about and it's crazy one is called amylin amylin helps um makes you feel full after a meal one is called urocortin 3 and it's crazy like the amount that these beta cells release is like incredible and nobody ever talks about it and then that's not even talking about other things that our pancreas is responsible for that could get damaged like stomatostatin is also a satiety hormone or hormones that make you feel full we don't know how much function julia has or how much i have or how much emily has like it's just there's so many variables and um i think the best way to see if somebody has like really difficult diabetes or we used to call it brittle diabetes but that's no longer the the terminology we use um i actually don't remember what the terminology we've now changed it to we're just going to call it worse, worse diabetes. But if let's say a person is on MDI and finger stick pokes first, and then we put them onto a DIY loop system and all of a sudden their blood sugars are like perfect, then we know it's like, it might be just the, like the treatment. But it's interesting because you don't know and it's kind of arbitrary, like what that quality is. (laughs) Okay, so all of it's going to do is just tell me that I am, in fact, type 1. Yeah, but if you have C-peptide, it's kind of a, it's, like, not a bad thing. It's a good thing. C-peptide also correlates really highly with having uh, low sensations. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I went to a conference probably back when I was 15 with my parents, and there was one lady who had a second pump. One had her insulin and the other one had amylin. Oh, that's that's cool. And she was using that as a way to lose weight Mm -hmm. in addition to help with her blood sugars. Right. But I never really understood it because I was 15 years old and I just, I didn't ask enough questions to understand. Yeah. So how does that, how does that work? So the normal uh, human adult beta cell produces uh, amylin and insulin. And then your cortin three also, but amylin, amylin actually helps your stomach. Like it delays your stomach from transiting food into your intestine. So it makes you feel fuller for longer because your stomach isn't just like pumping out food away from that organ. 
And it also plays a role in your brain chemistry. So it makes you feel full, whereas insulin makes you hungry, which is kind of interesting. So when you eat a meal, you don't want to be hungry after that meal, right? So your body has evolved to, number one, make sure the glucose in your blood comes right back down after that meal. And number two, it makes you, it makes a signal for you to know that, oh, I'm satisfied now. I don't need to eat my whole pantry, which is why sometimes when we have low blood sugars, I think, I, I don't know if this is proven yet, but I, I have this inkling that because of that non, we don't have those responses. That is why it's so easy for us to eat an entire pantry full of goodies because we don't have these hormones to be like, hey, hi, I'm done eating now. Like I have enough food in my stomach. Uh, you can stop now. Like I'm confident that that's something that happens within us. Okay, that would make so much sense because now I have to like trick myself and I like will have a spoonful of peanut butter so that my brain thinks that, oh, I'm eating right now still. <laughs> but like the peanut butter is not going to affect me the same way it would if I had the gummy bears that I still would love to eat. Right. Yeah. I used to do that with Diet Coke because Diet Coke would like not spike my blood sugars, but also trick my brain into being like, okay, I'm actually eating right now. Cause sometimes when I'm low, I just need to eat the entire time and I'm low. Like I just, exactly. Yes. I just like my body is literally saying I am dying. You need to fix this. You need to keep eating. Yeah. But then like you have the reverse reaction where you go up to 20 and then you're chasing the roller coaster. Yeah. So I need to continue eating, but I need to eat something that doesn't like impact your blood sugar. Yeah, exactly. Diet Coke, that's a smart trick. Not I in, like that. Not in the middle of the night. Don't do it. Don't do yeah. it. <laughs> Stupid. The caffeine, I would be guilty of that. Oh my I God. for sure would be guilty because I'd be like, you know what? That's so funny. Let's pound it back. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. I'm I'm in a place where diabetes science is changing really rapidly. And every day there's a new study saying like, you know, like there's things where I'm like, oh, why am I such, I, I know there's no such thing as a truly bad diabetic, right? Or a person who's bad at diabetes. It's a learning curve for everyone. But now I'm feeling like, I think doctors are realizing that, oh, we've, like negated every single other hormone that is messed up every single one of them and we're blaming all of those hormones being messed up on the person the individual and it's making treatment a lot harder so it's really important to be compassionate to yourself and be like okay well it's not just insulin it's like amylin and uh, I don't even know there's probably a thousand that I've missed but there's tons tons of hormones that we're missing it's been kind of an interesting journey because at the beginning I thought it'd be overwhelming and that be, you know, because everything is diabetes related. And now I'm feeling kind of like, ah, I guess I'm not that bad because I'm missing a billion things, you know, like I'm missing things that normal people have. I'm really pressing on the compassion train today because I think it's really important because people compare each other like in this community, I think people compare themselves with somebody who has like an A1C of 5.7. And then they forget that everyone is human and you all go through different things at different times in your life. And you have to be compassionate because we might have different amounts of damage to our bodies. Like that's, it's just what it is. We might have different hormones. We might be in the in a different time in our cycle. Your 
human and you should be compassionate to yourself and you should live your best life. Sometimes um, people will see a high blood sugar in the lab and they'll be like, oh my gosh, your blood sugar is 16. What are you doing? Uh, What are you doing wrong? And we already get that enough of that from people who don't understand type one diabetes. We don't need to do that to ourselves also. But you know, it's funny though, because if I were to see one of my friends who have that blood sugar, I'd be like, that's okay. You took your insulin. You did what you were supposed to do. But would I talk to myself that way? Probably not. I'd probably be like, oh, like, what did you do? You didn't bolus on time. Or I'd just like, you know, talk to myself in a very negative way. Yeah. Um, that's, so that's a good reminder. It's hard to get out of that because like, I, I know when I was diagnosed like 14 years ago, it was just, oh, you're going to lose your limbs or something. And the truth is one blood sugar, high blood sugar, or like a few high blood sugars aren't going to do that. It's only like a prolonged, like really high blood sugar for months and months and months and months. And people forget that your body recovers. So even if you've had that, which I've had in my teenage years, I just was over it and I was burnt out because there's so many like everyone wanted me to do everything. Everyone wanted me to have an A1C of like five. And I was a teenager navigating what it meant to be a teenager who I wanted to be at that time. And it was just so much pressure that I ended up having diabetes burnout and it turned out way worse than if I had just let my blood sugars ride a little bit high, you know, for a little bit, or if I just gave myself a little bit of compassion and said, okay, it's fine. I'm going through a lot. And it's not going to harm me long-term. It's a long-term game. Always. Everything's always a long-term game. Yeah. Your teenage life, you want to be going out with friends and enjoying and maybe not super stressing about if you're riding the line of 5.5 all the time, right? It's kind of, like you said, finding that balance of what works for you and the life you want to be living. I think that's really important for you to say, like, it is really important to say, I'm not, not a medical professional. I'm not giving you advice to ride your blood sugars super high or super low, but you do have to make sure that your mental health is doing well, is all I'm trying to say here. Well, I mean, I think we've all been in that situation, you know, where it's, you have have phases where you don't focus on your blood sugars as much as other periods of time. Yeah. And that's, that's life because it's not always balanced and Mm -hmm. sometimes some things have to give and other things take more precedent. So I agree. I agree. Totally. And it comes back to how you're feeling too, because if you're noticing your energy is not doing so well, and maybe that's because of your blood sugars, maybe they're a little bit higher than they should be, then you can come back and, and maybe bring the focus back to it because you know, you want to feel better, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, your health is for yourself, right? So you should, um, I feel like you have to do the best for yourself to give your your future self the best possibility to live their best life as well. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for everything you've shared with us here today. I feel like I learned so much. So where can people find you? Are you on social media? What's your account? I'm sure people would love to follow along. So my Instagram is at artinfusion97, and I post some cool, fun, painted pod photos and stuff like that sometimes some cool sciencey things up there I have a Twitter um, my Twitter is just Jasmine Magara and I I guess you could find me on LinkedIn as well if you really wanted 
Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Actually, I'm curious about that art infusion. So what is it that inspired that account? Yeah. So I guess we, we talked earlier about how I used to be really shy about type one diabetes. Um, I was really uncomfortable wearing a device because I felt like everyone was staring all the time. And that's just an added challenge that sometimes we just don't need in our lives. <laughs> so I started painting my pods um, and I decided, okay, I'm going to start painting them for myself to make them look cute, to match outfits. Um, and then that kind of sprung into this like thing where I would make these pod covers, these reusable pod covers to kind of decorate your devices. And uh, in the community, it was apparently a huge thing and everyone loved them. And so I started creating pod covers for other people and I got to uh, take pictures of them and post them onto my socials, which was pretty cool. So yeah, check it out. If you ever want a pod cover by me, I'd be happy to make you one and just reach out. So with that, we are going to end this session with your daily dose question. Daily dose. <laughs> daily dose question. Have you ever named an islet cell? <laughs> person. No, no. You don't name so them. Many. There's so many in the dish and you like shake it around and it's gone. It's lost forever. You shake them around. You have to. You gotta like separate them to like pick them and that's violent. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to Under the Insulin. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review our podcast. This is what helps us reach even more listeners and share our message with more type ones who might need to hear it. And if you'd like more information about I Challenge Diabetes or any of the resources talked about today, we've put the links for you in the description. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your day. I got diabetes oh, my, my diabetes is flaring up. <laughs> flaring up. I love that. That's brilliant. Oh, I'm going to say that one day. Sorry, my diabetes is just flaring up. <laughs> yeah. I'm having a bad flare, you know, it just... <laughs> <laughs> Today ain't the day, nor will tomorrow. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs>